0: You may be seated. Well, as you know, the central figure of the New Testament Gospels uh, is Jesus Christ. And each of the authors of those Gospels set out to be able to write on the life of Christ from their own unique perspectives. And so, with that in mind, you would think that when Luke begins to write his uh, portion of, of the Word of God based on the life of Christ, you'd think that it would begin with a story of Christ's birth. But when we look in chapter 1, we find out that it's... Really not about the birth of Christ, but rather the birth of John the Baptist. Now, why would that be? Well, to understand it, you actually have to go many, many years back, actually to the Old Testament, to the book of Malachi. Uh, There in Malachi, God spoke uh, through the prophet uh, Malachi to the people, and these would be his very last words that he would speak before he fell silent for some 400 years of history. And the last words are actually found in Malachi chapter 4 and verse 5 and 6. And and there we find out that it was actually a promise from God that he gives before he goes silent. Here's the promise. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Now, who he's prophesying about is actually John the Baptist. Uh, He was the one that would come and, and, and prepare the hearts of the people for the coming of the Messiah. Now, the way that we know this, for sure, is this. Is that after 400 years of silence, when God finally chooses to speak again... This time, instead of a prophet, he actually speaks through an angel, the angel Gabriel, who ends up speaking and pronouncing and announcing uh, the arrival or the birth, the future birth of John the Baptist to his father, Zechariah. And when he comes and when he's announcing this impending birth, he quotes from that Malachi passage he actually says this, I 'm going to read several other verses as well, but in Luke 1:14 he says, "And you, you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb, and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and they will go before him in the spirit and the power of Elijah." So when he prophesied, said Elijah was coming, another way to say it was one like Elijah was coming, a prophet that would come. And his job was twofold, to prepare the hearts of the people for the coming Messiah and to announce Announce Christ coming into the world. Now, you might think to yourself, well, why in the world would Jesus Christ need any introduction at all? I mean, he is the creator of the world, by whom, for whom, through whom all things were created. Why does he need somebody to come before him and introduce him? Well, even in our own culture, we understand the significance that, that there are some people of higher significance or higher clout, whatever you might want, what words you want to use, that are often introduced. For example, at a wedding, when a husband and wife, when they get married, they send the rest of us suckers over to wait for them in some fellowship hall somewhere, right? And hours later, after they're taking all of these thousands of pictures for themselves, and we are starving, they finally show up. And right when we think there's no hope, somebody grabs a microphone and says, They have your attention. I would like to be the first to introduce to you Mr. and Mrs. And everybody goes crazy, right? Not because of the couple, but because they get to eat. That's, that's probably why it is. Uh, sometimes you, could, you remember this too with sports uh, figures. Uh, uh, usually before they take the field or they take the court, uh, they get the attention of the audience and they call their attention. And all of a sudden they say, let's hear it for, and they, Michael, Jordan, Ah, everybody loses their mind. Or you think about it, maybe about a celebrity. When a celebrity is about to receive some award that they've earned, I guess that's one way to say it, that they've earned, they're always introduced by who? They're always introduced by another celebrity. And you ever notice that the greater the award, uh, the more important or famous the person who is doing the presenting of that award? And that's certain, certainly fitting here. What's happening is Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world, is about to be introduced. So it only makes sense that he is introduced and that he would be introduced by one that Jesus Christ himself said is the greatest man ever born of woman. This is the perfect way to begin his narrative into the life and birth of Jesus Christ. Now I want to remind you from last week, in case you forgot or if you weren't here, the whole point of Luke's writing is this. He wants you and I to believe more. He wants us to be more certain that the truth that we find in the Bible is in fact true. That the things that you and I have learned, heard preached and taught and learned on ourself but through the study of the word of God, we believe it but we need to believe it more especially in the day and time in which we are ultimately living. So that's what we want to do today. We're going to be looking at the circumstances surrounding John the Baptist's birth. The desire is again for us to to believe more and to be more certain, and there's two ways in which we're going to do that. Two ways that we can be more certain in what we believe is this. Number one is by obeying through every obstacle, and number two, by taking God at his word. So just two things today. Number one, our faith becomes more certain by obeying through every obstacle. Now, we pick up in verse five. I'm going to tell you the story here. The Bible says, in the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now, in typical Luke fashion, he's going to give us some great detail that some of the other authors did not give us. And what he wants to do is he's trying to paint for us what the culture was like when John the Baptist was about to be born. And it is dark, specifically. It's dark politically. He mentions here that he was born in the days of Herod, the king of Judea, meaning that that this particular time in, in Israel's history, they are under the oppression of the Roman government. Not only that, but they're also being ruled by a puppet king by the name of Herod the Great, who is powerful and he is terribly ruthless. In fact, he has no problem at all of killing some of his family members or pronouncing death on a whole generation of young Jewish children, male Jewish children, simply because he heard the rumor that a Jewish king has now been born. He's probably most, uh, most well known for all of his architectural accomplishments there in Jerusalem, many buildings that he built, including the Jewish temple in Jerusalem. But please understand, he didn't do any of it for the good of anybody else. He always did it for his own selfish means. He wanted to do it to be able to gain fame for himself, and he wanted to be able to hold on to the power, and he was willing to do anything he could, including murdering people to be able to do it. So it was a dark time politically, but it was also a dark time spiritually. As I said in the introduction, it had been 400 years since God had spoken. That's 400 years of silence and so the people over that 400 years had begun to drift away from God. Uh, they were no longer following him. They no longer believed with the same conviction the promises that had been given by Abraham and Mo- to Abraham and Moses and David. Uh, literally, they were being secularized. All of their religion and their religious practices were becoming secularized. secularized. In other words, instead of the world becoming like them, they were becoming more like the world in the way that they believed, in the way they thought, in the way they spoke, in the way that they lived. This is what was happening during the time of John the Baptist's birth. Now, in the midst of it, what we find here is that at the same time, even the whole culture is losing their minds and religious culture is losing their minds, there is still, as always, a remnant of faithful followers of God. And this particular remnant includes the parents of John the Baptist. And so we're introduced to them as Zechariah and Elizabeth. And the Bible says of them that both were righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. When it says that they were blameless, it doesn't mean that they were perfect. It just means every bit of their life was directed in obedience to the commands of God, and that's what they were seeking over anything else. So notice what they were able to do. Despite what was happening around them in their culture, despite what was happening amongst the religious cultures, all of these are traps for them to leave and fall away from the faith. They remained faithful overall. And not only were they challenged with these difficulties, but there was another problem that they had. We actually read about that in verse 6. They had a personal problem that they both were dealing with. The Bible says in verse 7, But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. So, Please understand something. The reason why the majority of the people will suggest that they do not believe in God or believe in the gospel or believe that the Bible is true is not because they read some critical assessment of the Bible somewhere by some, uh, some professor at some secular university who wanted to disprove the Bible. When I meet people and they don't believe, it has nothing to do with intellect. has everything to do with their emotion has everything to do with the fact that they have experienced hardships in their life. And they will say, if there is truly a loving God, he could not and would not allow these things to be able to happen to me. Therefore, because they have, I cannot believe in him. And so here we have this couple who has been struggling for years. They've been faithful despite the fact that they're under oppression. They have been faithful despite the fact that the religious community is literally losing its mind. And they had been faithful even though for years, all their life, they had been praying to God just to give them a child. Now, if you've ever struggled or maybe you're struggling now to be able to have children, you understand how unique and how deep that pain is. To want a child so desperately and not to be able to have one and as desperate and as difficult it is for us, it is way more difficult for those in the first century for this couple. And here's why: the big reason is because children were viewed as a blessing and a gift and even reward of God. Amen. <laughs> children do not have low self-esteem by your parents' reaction to that. Okay, uh, children are a gift of God. We read it, and so. <laughs> Wow, that was, uh, that, if I was your child, I would be hurt right now. So Psalm 127 verse 3 says this, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. So if the Bible teaches that children are a reward, then what people believe is, well, if we have children, then God's obviously very happy with me. This is a reward for my good behavior. But what does that mean for those who can't have children? What does it mean like a woman like her who is barren, who can't have children? What does she begin to think? Certainly, I must have sinned against God. Certainly, there's something wrong. And it's not only herself that begins to demean herself and begin to hard on herself, be hard on herself, but every time she walks through the community, everybody is looking at her as suspicion, thinking, what must she have done to deserve this from God and not be able to have children? She's gone through this all her life. They prayed. They wanted God to be able to give them a children. And yet, no matter how hard they prayed, no matter how much they try to confess every sin of today, just nothing seemed to come their way. And now they're older. She's not only bearing, now they're older. We'll talk about that in just a minute. But here's what I want to point out. Despite all of this, despite all the political nonsense that's going on in the world, despite all of the religious community becoming far more like the world than, than influencing the world, and even in their own personal pain, despite all of that, they were faithful to obey God and everything that he said. You know, one of the things that this reminds me of is it reminds me that certainly we ought not to be too hasty into determining why we or somebody else is suffering. I think people jump to conclusions far too often, both for ourselves and for other people. The Bible teaches that there are a lot of different reasons why people suffer. One of the reasons that people suffer is because of their own sin or because of their own foolish actions. Uh, uh, um, Jared Lamar was talking to me this last week, and uh, they live kind of back here in the mission house. And uh, he knows the gentleman right over here, the house north of us. His name is Kyle. He's a good buddy of his from, I believe, the fire station, I believe he knows him from. And, and, and he was just kind of walking on Appaloosa Road, this road out here. And he looked over and he saw that his buddy Kyle's truck was running. And so he walked over there to be able to say hey to him. The windows are really dark tinted. So he couldn't see and he, and he got closer and he realized that he wasn't in the truck. So he figured that he must have gone inside, forgotten something, he's about to come out. Well, instead of waiting like normal people, uh, uh, Jared does what Jared does. He says, well, I'll just jump in the driver's seat and shut the door. So he gets into the driver's seat, shuts the door. Out comes Kyle carrying his big metal Yeti in his hand. And he comes and he opens the door and Jared turns to him and goes, hello. And as he says hello, he scares Kyle like crazy, and he takes that Yeti, and he smashes Jared right in the face. All right? He's cut. I'm looking at him. He's cut, blood coming down his face. He's laughing. Okay, so sometimes we bring pain upon ourselves, okay? Whether for sin or for foolishness. Sometimes we suffer simply because we're doing what is right. Please understand that we no longer live in a world that really seeks to reward righteousness, but rather would penalize righteousness. We live in a world today, I hate to break it to you if you don't know it, that calls good evil and evil good. In fact, you are far more apt to suffer for doing the right thing and actually being rewarded for doing the right thing, saying the wrong, th- wrong thing, and thinking the wrong thing uh, today, then you are really being rewarded for doing something that is truly biblical and righteous and pleasing to God. And sometimes as we seek God, we're going to suffer for righteousness' sake. But there's a third reason why we often suffer. One of the, th- one of the reasons, and the reason that we see here is for the glory of God. That's the category that these two, this husband and wife, is falling into. They are suffering in order for God to ultimately be glorified. And the way they're doing it, is they're not being influenced by anything else or anyone else. They're not getting caught up in listening to media. They're not getting caught up by all of these these religious entities, all of these uh, different denominations who seem to be going south in secularity rather than holding truth to the Bible. And, And they're not even being disobedient in the midst of their own personal suffering. They just sit there and says, above all, I will obey you. And in the midst of that, God is ultimately glorified. It's a beautiful picture. Philip Rankin says this. He says, the question to ask about suffering is not, what have I done to deserve this? But how can I glorify God through this? Elizabeth is a perfect example. She did not wait for a child before her life could begin. She was busy serving the Lord, walking blamelessly in his commandments. For her, what, uh, what some people consider a tragedy became an opportunity. No matter what suffering we must endure and everyone suffers, there is still a way for us to live for the glory of God. We live in a dark political time. People are losing their ever-loving minds. You get that, right? You do understand that. Everywhere. And you say, who? Everyone is losing their ever-loving minds. We live in a dark place spiritually. People that I even begin to follow and begin to learn from and have been blessed from their own ministries, they sound far more like the world today than they do the truth of the word of God. And there are people in here at the same time, pile and all that, are going through very deep, difficult, personal pain. All of that is happening. And so you and I can either live in fear and shut down, or we, can, or we have the opportunity for, to glorify God and obey. Those are the two options that we have. And, and I know that there are Christians here that, that too often, they just shut down their obedience too quickly. Uh, things begin to happen. Uh, things begin to happen in politics, and all of a sudden, they begin to become shell shocked. And, and, and as the nation loses its way, guess what they do? They sit back and instead of professing that Jesus Christ is the way, they're just quiet. Sometimes when they see other things, and this is where I struggle with, again, where I see different religious denominations becoming more secular, that's what hurts my heart. Because look, a lost world is going to live like a lost world. But when you see professing believers living in the same way, that's when your heart really begins to bleed. And you look at that, and at the same exact time, it could cause us just to go, well, what's the point? Let's just give up. Or in the midst of pain, what you could do is you go, look, I'm suffering from pain. I don't have time to really grow in Christ, work for Christ, do the will of God. I've got too many big issues boiling over for myself. And all of us can ultimately respond that way. Let me say this. If you're waiting to obey when the country finds its way or when the religious culture gets a clue or when you no longer have, are facing troubles, then you will never obey and never bring glory to God through your obedience, because our country will never get it. None of these things are ultimately going to have. To truly believe is to obey. We believe no matter what obstacle comes against us, political, cultural, or personal. Amen? Let me give you a little pastoral advice. Can I do that? I'm going to give it to you anyway. <laughs> a little pastoral advice. What I would suggest to you is this men, women, turn. The news off. Just turn the news off. Turn the news off. Now here's what some of you gotta feel. You're already you're already politically religious people, and I hate that. Take all that junk out of here. We're not interested in that because everybody has a narrative. Everybody, right? Uh, It doesn't matter what newscast it is. Even Fox, yes. Even Fox News. Sean Hannity, yes. Even Sean Hannity. Whatever it is that you listen to, everybody has a narrative and they are trying to influence you so that you will act a certain way and do a certain thing. The only narrative that you and I are bound to is the narrative of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the narrative. It doesn't matter. Now there's truth in all of this. We talked about this last week. There are great injustices that are done. We need to be people who speak up for that. Any brother and sister in Christ, anybody who is created in the image of God, you and I should be the first to be able to stand for truth. We should, amen? We should do that. We should go out there. But we don't lose our brains and deal with things in an unbiblical way. We deal with them in a biblical way as submission to God so that God may be glorified in the midst of our obedience, in the midst of the craziness. Stop Watching the news. You, and I love you, but you are an absolute emotional wreck because you watch too much. You listen too much. I'm happy. I don't watch any of it. I don't have cable. I have joy. You you know what else? Let me just give you one more thing. Get off social media. All you do, listen, all you do is get angry. I can't believe they said that. And the reason they said that, and they didn't even mean to offend you, but they said that because they don't have enough characters to explain what it is that they actually meant. So then you want to tweet right back at them? Well, I'll tweet back at him. And then, so then you ain't tweeted back. Now you're making everybody angry. Everybody's angry. Here's what ends up happening. Everybody is so upset. So look, there is a reason to be upset about certain things. There is a righteous anger we must have. You, did you hear me clearly? But here's the bottom line. Let me give you an example. Shut it all off. Get all of it. You jump into the word of God, douse yourself, saturate yourself in the truth of God's word. Then you go out to your neighbors. You go out to your communities. You love your neighbor as yourself. And you begin to share, actually with your own voice, the promise of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And here's what's going to happen. That fear is going to be removed. It's going to be replaced with hope and joy. Why? Because God is being glorified in the truth of his word. That's what's going to happen. That's what God is calling us to. So that's just a, little, just a little bit of advice. Take it or leave it. Whatever you want to do. That's the first thing. How do we become to be more certain in what we believe? We become more certain by obeying through every obstacle so that God would be glorified. Number two, our faith becomes more certain by taking God at his word. Taking God as his word. Now, we pick up in verse 8. Now, while he was serving as priest before God, when his division uh, was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of, God, uh, of people were praying outside uh, at the hour of incense. Let me give you some background real quick. First century, there were approximately 20,000 priests that were serving in Israel at the time. Those 20,000 priests were divided up into 24 different divisions. Zechariah was of the 8th division, or as we say, the, uh, the division of Abijah, And so what would happen is the majority of the year, these priests would serve in local villages and local towns, in their local kind of where they they live. Three times a year, they would actually all come back and descend on Jerusalem, and they would all serve as all the Jewish people would descend on Jerusalem as well, and they would begin to celebrate three of their uh, holy holidays, and so they would come back. Now, other than that, uh, the each division, each 24 division, would come back and serve at the temple for two weeks at a time. Well, that's a lot of people still serving at any one given time at one particular temple. And so what would have to happen is they would have to cast what are called lots. Think in terms of uh, drawing uh, straws or rolling dice. It's kind of like a chance. You, You don't really know who to pick, so by chance you're just basically rolling the dice and whoever's number comes up, they're the ones that get to go in and do this particular deed or act of service within the temple. But here what we find is it's not by accident, but by the providence of God that the law actually falls on Zechariah. Now this is gonna be a big day for him. Because he's going to get to do a a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. He's going to be able to go into the holy place and actually offer up incense on behalf of the people. The incense represents prayers. And so the priest would go in uh, one time in the morning, one time at night. Not sure which one it was here. But he would go in and he would offer up incense. And people would gather all in the courtyard outside. And he would pray for the salvation of Israel. And this was a once-in-a-lifetime thing. Once you were chosen for this, you could never do it again. So you could imagine how big this must have been for them, how excited they were. You know, if they could, they would have be selfing themselves near, near, you know, near the temple. Hey, here I'm going in. And so here's what happened. He goes into the holy place. Other priests would have been with him. At the appropriate time, they would have drawn back. And as they end up drawing back, he would have remained offer up the incense there on the table and begin to pray for the salvation of Israel as a multitude of people would remain. Well, that is a blessing in itself. But something happens that he wasn't expecting. An angel of the Lord shows up and he's, He's standing on the right side of the table. Now, here's what's interesting. This is how you know that he's recording or he's giving back eyewitness account. If somebody, police officers, they can tell you this. Police officers will tell you that when they're listening to somebody's uh, giving some kind of testimony or some kind of witness about what happened, they always look for details. And if they give specific details that never change, then they know, hey, this is real. The more general it is and broad it is and shifty it is, they begin to realize "Eh, the person probably wasn't there they probably didn't see what they thought that they were going to see. And so here is somebody, maybe even Zachariah himself, when Luke began to go around and begin to introduce and begin to interview all these people, said and there he was, as I was standing there lighting this, there was an angel standing on the table on the right side. So he writes that specific detail down. I I give that to you because that's going to be helpful for us as we work through the book. But here he is and an angel shows up, and the Bible says that he is terrified. That he falls to the floor and he's in complete fear. Now, I want you to understand that in the United States, for whatever reason, Christians here see a lot of angels, all right? A lot of angels. Everybody's seen an angel. And apparently, one out of three evangelicals suggests that they've actually had an encounter with an angel. That's a lot of people, all right? And really unfortunately of the whole thing is the majority of these angels have one or two uh, services that they've been sent by God to do. A is to be able to help lost people that can't follow direction get back on I-95, that's one. And the other one apparently is to be able to have parking duty to be able to help people find a good parking spot in a crowded grocery store. Not joking, that's what people say. So listen, an angel is not a little baby, all right? do not run around with little diapers, shooting a little arrow. He doesn't do that. That's not what happens. People will just sit there and go, well, you know, I got my little angel. He kind of just sits there right up here. That's the devil. Oh, I mean right over here. No, that's not what happens. Anytime in the New Testament that somebody sees an angel, they immediately go in the fetal position, start sucking their thumb and go, I'm going to die. That's what they do. And the reason is, is because when an angel's there, an angel spends his time in the presence of God, so he reflects the glory of God, and you and I in our sinful state cannot deal with the glory of God without fear of perishing. So he shows up, and he appears before him, and this is interesting, and, and, and you would think now at this p- particular point, everything is going to go well, because he begins to tell him all that's going to happen with his son. And you think that he's going to go well, but what really happens, he tells him, he says, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear a son and you shall call his name John. Now here's the deal. There's some disagreement with what prayer he's talking about here, but let me explain it for a minute. There's some that says the prayer that's actually being answered is the prayer that he and his wife had prayed for all those years for their son. Others say, no, no, what he's praying for is his prayer is being answered. The prayer that he was just praying, that is the salvation of the people of Israel. And people argue back and forth on this, but I don't think you can separate the two. Because with the coming of John is going to come the fulfillment and the promise of a Savior who is coming. If the Savior is coming, then John has to be born. It's kind of like two sides of one coin that he's answering simultaneously. And so he comes and he says this is what's going to happen. Now, this seems to be good news. Seems to be outstanding news. The two things I want more than anything I'm going to get, Krispy Kreme donuts and a Five Guys hamburger, that's a day of celebration. But here he comes to him, and here's what he says. Here's in his rejoicing. He says, how shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. Now, at first, that seems like a wonderfully politically correct way of saying that your wife is old. To be able to sit back and go, I am old, but I would never say that about my wife. Rather, she is graciously advanced in years. That sounds much better in the English. But, but, but actually, in the Greek, it's, it's not to be understood that way. Actually, he's kind of dogging out his wife a little bit, okay? I'm not saying he's being ungracious, but what he's actually saying is, look, I'm old. My wife, she's beyond old, all right? She's way beyond it, okay? She's not, you've heard the term, uh, hey, she's getting up there. She's not getting up there. She's there, all right? She's there. And so she's she's very old, she's been barren, she's too old to have any babies. And so you see what he's doing here. He goes, how will I know this? He wants proof. In other words, he's saying, according to what do I know that this is going to happen? Based on what do I know that what you say is happening is actually going to happen? Now understand, before we're too hard on Zechariah, understand that he's not the only one who has found himself in this predicament. If you remember the story of Abraham and Sarah, same thing, not able to have a baby. Angel of the Lord comes to them, tells them, you're gonna have a baby. Sarah actually laughs. Do you remember that? <laughs> he goes, husband goes, hey, you were laughing. No, I wasn't laughing. He goes, okay, you weren't laughing, but you were laughing. That's literally what he says. And then what, what, what happens though is Abraham even seems to have a problem with this. Abraham responds similar to this way, Zechariah. Genesis 15, eight, sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? So it sounds very similar. How can I know for sure? But what we find is that God actually responds in two different ways. He actually blesses Abraham and says, it was accounted to him as faith and and, and, and blessed him for that. His faith was accounted as righteousness to him. And so he blesses him. But with Zechariah, he's actually disciplined. We're gonna see that for a moment. Well, what's the difference? Well, the difference has to be the heart. See, I think what was happening with Abraham is he believed what he was asking is, God help my unbelief. Have you ever been there? I believe that, but my circumstances really are really causing me to struggle. Lord, help my unbelief. Zechariah flat out didn't believe. He just didn't, he flat out didn't believe. So he goes, I want a sign so I can be sure. Now, this is one of the most hilarious uh, passages of scripture in all the word of God. I can tell because you're laughing so hard. Um, because why? He goes, I need a sign. Now, notice how he says it. He says, I'm going to read both responses. How shall I know this? For I am an old man. Gabriel's response I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you to bring you this good news. You want a sign? Bro, I'm an angel. (laughs) I've lived from a long, 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 long time in the very presence of God, and I'm standing on this table. And you want a sign? Okay, that's enough. That should be enough. But it's not even where he puts the weight of his argument. Here's the weight of his argument. Remember, why should I believe this? On what basis should I believe this? That's the question. Here's what he says. I was sent to speak to you and bring you this good news. He says, your sign? On what basis you should believe what I said is the basis that I just spoke the word of God to you. That's the basis of your belief. Please don't think in any way, shape, or form the people who demand more signs or more evidence or the people that get arguing with you about archaeological arguments in the Bible and this and proof texts and all this stuff in the Bible, don't think for a moment that the majority of them are honest in their interest and whether what you believe is actually true. They're just a big bunch of smoke clouds just because they do not want to believe. And don't think if you could just sum up some way that you could just convince them intellectually that all of a sudden that they're going to believe and they're going to have proof then all of a sudden they're going to believe. That's not the way that this faith comes about. Faith comes about in God's word when, when you come to the faith that you believe that God is faithful to do what it is that he says he will do. When you come to understand God, that he is faithful to do what he says that he will do, that is when we ultimately believe God's word. Do you know that that's why we spend so much time in the word of God? You might be here and you might be like, bro, all they ever do is spend time in the Bible. I've got problems and all kinds of things. I need some stories and some different things because they help me through this. I got nothing for you except for the book. And in the book, what does it teach you? It's one story after another, after another, of God making a promise, and then God doing what? Fulfilling it 1,000% of the time. God is always faithful to do, and the reason that we believe him the reason that we believe him and take him is not because we're seeing something or, or God's answering some prayer, but rather just simply because we know that God is faithful to do all that he says in his word. Now, here's what's difficult. God's going to do it anyway, whether Gabriel believes or not, right? But do you ever, when your parents, did they ever say, hey, we can do this the easy way or we can do this the hard way? Nobody? I had awful parents. Okay, so that's what they said all the time. They said, we could do this the easy way or the hard way. I know I say it at home, and they always choose the the easy way because I'm such a great parent. And um, so so easy way, hard way. Well, Elizabeth actually chooses the easy way look at verse 26 after these days his wife elizabeth conceived so she finds out about this she conceived and for five months she kept herself hidden saying thus the lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people here's what she's what did she do for those five months same thing you did laying out your prenatal vitamins getting the nursery ready for the child. She's all excited about the new baby that's about to be born. This is a completely different response in Zechariah. Zechariah sits there and goes, I don't believe you, you're gonna have to show something. She hears the word of God and it's not even directly, but she hears somebody tell her the word of God. What does she do? She believes it wholeheartedly and her whole life is directed in obedience to the word that she ultimately hears. This is the easy way or the hard way. She obeys, he disobeys. So guess what she gets to do? She gets to talk to all her friends and they get to all be, be over. Guess what happens to Zachariah? He shuts his mouth. He comes up and he, t- and he tells him to be quiet. And he says, and behold, verse 20, he says, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. Because now for the next nine weeks, you can't speak. You can't say a word. Isn't this interesting? Is, is, do you see the irony here? The irony is God spends and waits for 400 years to speak again. He finally speaks through somebody and to somebody who's now supposed to share it with everybody else and now he can't say anything for the next nine months. How frustrating must that have been? But in essence, what does it teach us? I think it teaches us this. Unbelief on your behalf and my behalf based on what the word of God says always impedes our witness to others. Always. We can tell people we believe something and and we can go through the motions of Christianity and we can show up and we can give and we can serve and we can go and we can do a lot of these things. But really in the back of your mind and my mind, there's all this doubt based on what God has said because the circumstances around us is saying something different. And the Bible teaches us in the word of God that what we need to do is we need to be ready to be able to give people the reason of why we have hope at any moment. The problem is, is some of us, because we're looking around at what's happening in the politics, what's happening culturally, in religious culture, what's happening in my own life, all of a sudden because of disappointments and fears, we no longer truly believe. But the whole point is, we don't believe based on anything, any sign, or a lack thereof. We believe simply because of the faithfulness of God to do what he says he will do. That is where, that's when you and I grow. That's when you and I just say, hey God, nothing looks like it, nothing seems right, but what I know is this, is what you say is to be true. I think it's an interesting fact. I don't know if this is on purpose for the providence of God, but it's interesting that the word Zechariah, name Zechariah, means God remembers, and the name Elizabeth means his oath. When you put it together, it simply means God remembers his oath. He remembers his promises to his people. And what I mean by that is this. When everything seems to be going crazy around us, we can hold strong that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. We can believe that God has a plan for us. We can believe that one day in the midst of all of this chaos, that there will be people from every tribe, tongue, nation, and people group, every color every background every everything you can imagine most diverse as you can standing around the throne of god worshiping the one who is worthy of all praise jesus christ we can be assured of that you say why god remembers his oath his word is faithful because he himself is faithful And you can be absolutely assured that because of his goodness of sending his son, Jesus Christ, to die on a cross, that he made a way for you to be born again, for your sins to be forgiven, you to be reconciled for God and have life and have it more abundantly. And you can be assured that he will forgive you. Why? Because he said that he would. He said that he would. Let's pray together. Lord, we come to you. We thank you, Lord, for this morning. We thank you for your goodness. God, I just pray this morning that our people will be grounded, grounded in their faith. That God, that every issue that comes our way in culture or anything else will not cause us to lean or to turn we will not be impacted in a negative way, but rather, Lord, we will be faithful in the work of the gospel of Jesus Christ and loving all those who are around us and making a difference in the world in which we live as, because in the midst of the darkness is when the light brights uh, shines the brightest. And God, I just pray that we will come together as believers in Christ. And this morning we will say, as for me and my house, we're gonna serve the Lord. And what we're gonna do is we're gonna to hold to the word of God unapologetically. We will be gracious, we will be loving, but we will not be ashamed for the preaching and the teaching of the word of God. Why? Because only you are faithful and we will trust. Lord, we believe. Help us to believe all the more. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand. We're gonna take just a couple moments to respond. If you wanna know more about Christ, you wanna know more about how do you have a relationship with him, I'd love to talk to you more about that. Maybe some of you are just, you just need prayer, love to pray for you, or maybe you want to come to the altar. Whatever it is, uh, you just do that this morning. All right, we'll just take a couple minutes.